Hello, friend. As always, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you here with me on The Tully Show. Hard to believe it has been two years since the last time Kieran Satia was a guest on The Tully Show. Fun fact, Kieran was the very last guest on The Tully Show when it was both a podcast and a radio show on the satellite radio provider that shall not be named. Where does the time go? If it's been two years since Kieran was on The Tully Show, that means it's been two years of Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Two years of Rambling Man. Two years of Tully time. Two years of taking you fools to school in the shred shed. I could go on. You get the idea. There is a lot of stuff, and it just keeps piling up more every week for your listening pleasure exclusively at Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, making his Tully Show return, a professor of philosophy at MIT, the host of the Five Questions podcast and the author of several books, including his most recent entitled, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Hello and welcome, Kieran Setia. Hello, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here again. I cannot tell you, uh, I don't think I've ever had a more complicated yet ultimately more joyous reaction to getting an email from someone saying, hey, I've got this new project. I did your show before. Is it, you know, is it cool if we talk about the next thing? Because um, I don't know that you would recall this, obviously. It was a far bigger deal in my life than it was in yours, although I didn't realize it at the time when I spoke to you the last time, which is the first time we met. Unbeknownst to me, that was the last show, the last official professional act that I had at my former employee where I'd been working for 15 years and where at that point... Um, it was a reasonable assumption I would continue working for at least a couple right. more years. So um, it was, I don't really know what the, the Greeks probably had a word for the complicated brew of emotions that I felt when I saw that you were reaching out and that you had written a book entitled Life is Hard when here I am just about exactly two years later on the other side of um, going through a hard but ultimately life-affirming threshold of life. So I don't know what the word is for that, but nice to really, really nice to see you. <laughs> it's good to be back. I do remember that because I remember it happened right. We recorded the episode and I think maybe the next day you emailed to say, I'm not sure exactly when or how this is going to air. There was like, it was chaos. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like the Germans usually have the words for these things. I don't know what it would be, but there will be some long compound German yes. word that covers this. Yeah, I, I feel in general, one of the nice things about writing a book called Life is Hard is that I get to write people emails where the subject is life is hard. Yeah. And people, whatever else they say about the email, they agree with the subject. You know what I mean? Well, let's talk about that. Well, first of all, let's talk about your... Uh... The, the the larger subject that seems to preoccupy your work as a philosopher. Now, your last book that we discussed last time we spoke was called 
Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. This book is called Life is Hard. Kieran, are you okay? I, I, you know, I feel like the answer to that is, okay, you know, I'm a little better than okay. And that seems to be about the right target, you know, but better than okay is good. But uh, part of the idea of writing a book called Life is Hard is that I wanted to write a book about how philosophy can help you think through and live a good life that acknowledges throughout that an ideal or perfect life, you know, your best life, find your bliss. That is not a realistic vision. And that most of the time, what most of us are trying to do is live a good enough life. Like and that that's that's a noble goal. So so yeah, I'm 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 good. I'm glad to hear that. I wasn't entirely sure. Um, <laughs> that's that's a re, that's a relief. Yeah, reading through your book this week, <clears throat> a couple times I was reminded of the interview I conducted last week with a psychology, I think, postgraduate student named Adam Mastriani, and he introduced me to the term hedonistic treadmill, which I'd been familiar with the concept. I'd never heard of it before, and I feel like in, in, in a couple different ways that ties into your book and your work, it seems like the, the the assumption of what of your last answer seems to be that most of us just settle around like a hopefully like a six point seven out of yeah. ten, <laughs> and that maybe I mean I mean I know this isn't exactly your line of work, but does that feel or sound about right to you in your informed opinion that all of us are like pretty good most of the time and maybe we should just make our peace with that that that's a very interesting connection to draw i mean i do th i think I, I i don't know the social science uh all that well my sense is that people vary they have different baselines but people return to them very rapidly right. so so if you're basically an upbeat person terrible things can happen and you will bounce back and if you're basically very downbeat good things can happen and you will whatever the opposite of bounce back is, you will descend again. And so uh, there, there is something in that, the sort of realism of accepting one's own temperament as well as all the external circumstances that make life eh, more or less what it is. And so, I, yeah, I don't think exactly that we should settle for that, but I think accepting reality, sort of living in the world as it is, not the world we wish we lived in, is sort of a, a key part of wisdom to, to really start thinking about how to live a good life in a way that's got a chance of, of really working. In terms of things that might really affect our baseline, there, there are certain um, incredibly good things that could happen to people that probably would make them permanently happier. Um, and, and sadly, this seems to be often the absence of negatives. If, you've, if all you've known is miserable poverty and you're relieved of that, of course, that introduces new challenges, but you don't wake up in the middle of the night wondering about where food is going to come from. On the other hand... There do seem to be certain things that are uh, outliers, exceptional. And, and to me, one of those things would be chronic pain. It is hard for me to imagine being returning to a baseline. I'd say I'm a pretty happy guy. If I had chronic, it's not necessarily disability. You know, I can't run around anymore. Just actual pain, discomfort. And, and, and I think this is something that I received very directly from my parents is this is truism was passed down from the old people in my family that health is everything if you don't have health you have nothing uh and if you do have health you have everything that you need and honestly the older people in my family were raised very poor i think this is something that poor people often tell themselves go oh, look at that rich guy but you know i can run around and he can't therefore in a weird sort of way i'm kind of i'm kind of happier than than him 
your own work is informed by this chronic pain that I think we discussed last time. Um, that is so hard for me to understand. Pain hurts. How is it possible to still have a good day when you are in pain? When I'm sick, my happiness is put off until I'm returned to wellness. But when you have chronic pain, you obviously need to either accept or physically move on to a different realm where you can be both in pain and happy? Yeah. So I, part of what this book came out of was, was wanting to write about my experience with chronic pain. I was, I was going to say diagnosed. I started having chronic pain when I was about 27 and it's pelvic pain and it involves various kinds of indignities that I won't go into and in, go into into detail unless you want me to. But the, and then I was sort of undiagnosed. Basically it's the diagnosis is just chronic pelvic pain. Yeah, it, that is what it is. What it is. It, they don't really understand it very well, and it's not really treatable. And yeah, one thing I discovered in in writing a, a chat, wrote a chapter about infirmity, and I, I talk about disability too. And there, the social science suggests people do bounce back quite surprisingly well. And then the coda is always the footnote that says, "Well, the exception is chronic pain." Yeah, chronic pain, you're screwed. You don't bounce back. And so I think it is particularly challenging, and I think it's challenging not just because pain is bad, but because of the shadow it casts over life. So I think one of the things that's really hard about chronic pain or just any extended period of pain is not just what's happening in the moment, unless it's very intense. It's the way in which your you, you look forward to the future with this sense of gloom, like I'm never going to be pain-free, and you, you lose touch with what it's like to be pain-free. Although I, I will say two things that I found really helpful in, in thinking about this philosophically. One was actually there's it's actually a kind of an illusion that you'll really appreciate being pain-free. I don't know. Here's a, a kind of more mundane version of that. Every time I had a cold, I used to say to myself, every day I wake up without a cold and I can just breathe normally, I should think, oh my God, this is amazing to be able to breathe. But do I ever appreciate that? Eh, basically not. So I think there's a way in which the condition of being pain-free, you, you anticipate that it's going to be blissful, but you actually it's very hard to appreciate fully. But the other thing that I think is helpful about sort of thinking philosophically about this is once you realize how much of the challenge of chronic pain comes from anticipation of the future and sort of memory of the past, and you think actually in a given day of moderate physical discomfort, you, if it was just one day, you would just think, well, I'll just ignore it for today, have a pretty good day, no big deal. And in a way, it is just one day at a time. So the more you can sort of control your sense of the temporal horizons of your own life, the better. There's this, you know, Kimmy Schmidt uh, sitcom, which many people know. She, you know, she's been in a bunker for 15 years, and her motto is, "You can stand anything for 10 seconds." And I feel like, well, my time frame is longer than 10 seconds. But the more I think, could I have a good day today? The more I think, yeah, I could have a good day today. So I'll do, I'll have a good day today. And then tomorrow is tomorrow. And there, there's something about that way of approaching it that I find very helpful. I think it doesn't maybe, if your pain is really debilitating, this might not work. But for me, it, it's helpful. Well, you know of what you speak. So otherwise, that could be a, a glib thing to say. But you're speaking from personal experience. So I have to take you at your word. Let's talk um, first about, you know, the, the book is about how life is hard and how philosophy can help us with that. Or so you claim. Um, let's first talk about life as we know it, the nature of life, and then we'll talk uh, basically what can we do about life. First of all, in your opinion, to what extent is life actually hard, and to what extent do we human beings make life harder 
than it needs to be? That is a great question. I mean, that the there's this idea in philosophy called theodicy, where you it's originally a kind of theological idea that you justify the ways of God to man, and you kind of try to show that life doesn't have to be. In fact, everything's for the best. And there there are secular versions of that where philosophers will try to show that actually life does it isn't as bad as we think it is, or if we just changed how human society was organized, it wouldn't be. And I do think there's real truth in the in the idea that an enormous amount of what makes life difficult is could be mitigated by changing the way human society is organized. So disability is a good example. If if your disability is a if you have good accommodations, then there's sort of one thing you can't do, but the rest of your life is intact. If not being able to walk means you can't go anywhere, get a job or get an education, this is catastrophic. So in many cases, I think the ways in which life is hard are ones that, that we can address socially. But I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where loneliness or disability are really going to go away. And things like grief and loss, I don't think they're sort of features of the human condition that no social rearrangement is going to going to stop. We're going to love people and we're going to lose people. And that's how it's going to go. And to some extent, the same is true of, of failure, although that's another case where if society was arranged differently, it, we might feel like failure was a less life-defining thing and it, we would feel less precarious about it. So yeah, that's a kind of a mixed answer though, but that, that's how I, how, I would, how I would answer that question. Well, you, you mentioned the human condition. It sort of struck me. I've always been aware of this, but I don't think I've ever had this conscious thought before in, in going through your book. When we say the human condition, it's completely understood that we're alluding to something vaguely negative. That's never, you know, it's just, <laughs> well, that's the human condition yeah. is, is like this polite way of saying, well, we all know that life sort of is destined to suck to a certain extent. It, I mean, why do you think that is on the surface level the vast majority, and maybe this wasn't true, you know, life was nasty, brutish, and short for the vast majority of blah, 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 blah. But like now, we kind of got it made in the shade. Most people, plenty of food, shelter, infinite streaming services. Why, <laughs> uh, you know, of, of course, into every life, uh, a little rain must fall. Nobody debates that. But why does it just seem that they're human? The human condition to me implies there's a, there's a catch. There's a life is great, but there's a but there's there's this weird sort of uh, twilight zone <laughs> twist to it as well. Why why do we all know, why is it that the first time somebody says to you ah that's the human condition you go ah you're right yeah life does kind of suck. What are why do we all yes. know that why is that the case? That's another good question. I mean, I <laughs> one thing to say is that yeah you, you're nodding at it, but for the person listening, he's he's nodding at his own good question, which is which is fair enough. I mean, no, no, I no, think, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm asking you questions that don't have answers, and you're the one that's got no, to answer no, them. It's, it, it, I think one one thing to say there is that that at, at some level, mortality is at the root of lots of these things. So yeah. that you know, the the sense of the fact that every time we form an attachment or have a relationship one of us is going to experience terrible loss. Like one of us is going to be on the, the losing end of this in a way. That's something that I think comes to mind when you think about the human condition. It's just being being mortal. And many of the other kinds of things that are difficult kind of spin out of that. So you know, one thing that I talk about in the book that you might not ordinarily put on a list of the you know hardships of the human condition is the sense of absurdity. And there, I think that the sense that we we don't really understand the universe or where we fit into it, 
we don't really know how, what to make of it or how to feel about it. That also is, I, I think, comes to mind when you talk about the human condition, you go into this sort of philosophical mode. And that too seems like it it's not going away anytime soon. But I think you're right that it, it's it, there's something a little sad about the fact that when we talk about the human condition, that does bring to mind loss rather than love. And you know, one of the immediate things to say when you're confronting the place of loss in human life is, well, it's you know, it's the it's the dark side of something that we don't wish we could get rid of, love. And we don't even when you know, most people when they think about grief don't even really wish that they could get rid of it. It's not like you think what would be great is the moment I lose someone. I just forget about them and move on. You think, no, that there's something I'm at least ambivalent about most of our reactions to, to things like grief, but probably at some level, yeah, mortality is the, is the kicker here. Right. Well, and, and another feature of, of grief is that in not most, but many cases you, you wouldn't even necessarily wish to undo the thing. You know, if you have a relative that's very, very old and has been in clear decline for a while, you, 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 it's not as if you wish that they were still alive. You're happy that their suffering is is over and yet you still, you still grieve the loss. Honestly, you, that would, that was a, frankly, a better answer than I was expecting. And uh, it also answered (laughs) my next question, which is you list some of life's um, inevitable downsides. And most of these need, uh, in a nutshell, no explanation. Infirmity, loneliness, grief, failure, injustice. And alongside those, it's also one of the chapters in the book, is absurdity. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You rank the issue of the 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 absurd nature of life and the fact that we're aware of how absurd some of the big issues in our, our life are um you really think that ranks alongside loneliness failure grief as the the the, the paramount challenges to leading a successful happy life i well i think it's something that falls under the heading of spirituality or spiritual needs which people a vocabulary people might be hesitant to use but i you know there's there's clearly a a deep human need that religion is meeting for people who are religious. And I don't think that need goes away exactly when you're not religious. So so what that chapter is about is really about the meaning of life mm-hmm. and the idea, which is an idea it's hard to make sense of, but the, the way I think we can understand it is something like what we want when we want life to have meaning, not just our own lives, but sort of life as such, is we want there to be some kind of story about the whole of human life and its place in the universe and that when you tell that story in it and say, you know, what is that all about? What does that really add up to? There is an answer. And the answer is in some way affirming or leads to a certain kind of acceptance. And that's what many religions give you. They give you some kind of big story, kind of cosmology of how humanity fits into the universe, on which you can, or, or the assurance that there is one, on which you can say, that's what it's all about. And if that's what it's all about, okay, I can make my peace with it. And when you take away religious answers to that, I think the 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 question, you know, how am I supposed to feel about humanity and its place in the universe doesn't go away. What you're left with is just the sense that it doesn't really have an answer. I don't really know how to feel. And that's, oh, maybe I should feel really bad about it. And that is, is disorienting in itself. And so I, I think we should both accept that question and try to make secular sense of how life could have meaning and what you're answering there is, you know, it's it's a high level kind of need. It may not be as urgent as the needs of infirmity or, or loss, but it is, I think, a very widespread, if not universal human need to sort of make sense of things as a whole. 
Well, you know what? I, I read something recently that I think um, sort of clarifies or illuminates the the nature of that need that we all fear and the uh, feel and the extent to which we all feel it. I, I I don't recall the details specifically, but it was about the 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 human need for um, a belief in immortality. And so you go, okay, this is religion, and it's not. It's not what they're actually talking about. Is the thought experiment of if you could convince people that the world was going to end or that human civilization was going to end 15 years after you die, the way that we understand our own lives radically yeah. changes. Because even if you believe, if you only believe in imminent reality and, and some people claim to not, you know, they say there's no atheist in a foxhole. Some people claim to not believe in transcendent reality. But even if you truly are convinced of that in a really thorough way, if you believe that the human project dies with you it becomes nearly impossible to go on and we've seen you know uh, apocalyptic movies sort of play with this scenario but it is it is true we all need to believe that there is something larger than ourselves even atheists and to me that was sort of the point that proves it yeah no i i totally agree and i think that reflecting on cases like that that are very bleak is a way to try to think about what a more positive secular atheistical answer to what is the meaning of life could look like because if you think okay humanity comes to an end uh, no one dies prematurely. We just, you know, we, we're sterile or, you know, we're right. infertile. Humanity, children, like, children the, of, like the children, children of, of men. men. Yeah. Yeah. That You think, well, it's not a kind of, it needn't be a violent end in which anyone dies suddenly, but nevertheless, humanity doesn't go on. Why is that so awful? And I think, I think part of it is that we have a kind of investment in, yeah, the human project is how you put it. I think that's right. And we, we, there's a sort of love for humanity there. You know, scientists talk about ecological grief where scientists who are on the front lines of the climate catastrophe see species go extinct and they are stricken with grief. Now, if the loss of some other species induces grief, the loss of you, your own species naturally in, induces grief. And I think what we want is not just that humanity should survive. I think there's this a, a sense lots of us have that we could be doing so much better. This goes back to your initial question about, about the sources of suffering that it will be terrible for humanity to end like this. Like we're we're so far from having the kind of not utopian, but sort of just society that we can imagine. We're so far from realizing the extent of human creativity. The capacity for love is so sort of sort of uh, stultified and, and limited. In all of these ways, what we are, what we want is for even if we're going to die, humanity to go on and really make progress towards something better. And you think, okay, if that's what I want, if you said, if that was what was going to happen, how would I feel about life, the universe, and everything? And I think the way you should feel is at least better if that's how humanity goes. And what that suggests is there are ways human history could go that are complete, don't require immortality, on which our feelings about life, the universe, and everything should be more positive. And that's, I think, what it would take for there to be a secular meaning of life. And our relationship to that is, do we know that's going to happen? No. Can we hope that's going to happen? Yes. And can we try collectively to do something to make it happen in our small way? Yes. So so the, the slogan in the book is, you know, the life could have meaning, the meaning of life, uh, but the meaning of life is up to us, not in the sense that we can just make it up, but in the sense that we can collectively determine how humanity persist into the future and whether humanity persists into the future and thereby generate a kind of meaning that is a, a secular replacement for what religion would otherwise give us.
So we've talked about the title of the book, really, uh, Life is Hard. Now let's talk about how, in your opinion, philosophy can help us find our way, um, the ways in which philosophy might, you know, tackle the challenges life throws at us. Uh, uh, let, let me start by saying um, a dumb thing that probably shouldn't be a dumb thing. Um, philosophy, at least you would argue, can perhaps be a useful and, and here's an important word, practical tool in our lives. We all know that its essential purpose, uh, you know, is essential, understanding what the hell we're doing here and what we should be doing. And in the absence of strong spiritual conviction, as you say, it becomes even more important. And yet philosophy is functions in our society. Sorry, I'm sure you're aware of this. It's sort of a byword for things that are just like resigned to academia, maybe precocious high school and college yeah. students, and that's something that belongs there and lives in its little niche like fan fiction or something. Now, <laughs> now, I know how to use exercise as a tool in my life. I know, well, I, in theory, I know how to use meditation as a tool. I believe that I can learn how to use meditation as a tool. How does one even begin to attempt to not just be like aware of philosophy or read a book, but to use philosophy. And this ties into the intersection of philosophy. To what extent is it just a grandiose, more highfalutin, more intellectual exercise in what we all are far more uh, acquainted to using in the current world, which is self-help? Another great question. I mean, I, I think, for, you know, I, I love this idea that the philosophers, that, you know, the academics are writing Plato fanfic, which, you know, I think a lot of us <laughs> would think, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. It, it, but it, it does have an it has a niche audience. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one thing to say is that the, the divide between philosophy and self-help, the idea that practical guidance is one thing and theoretical reflection another is relatively recent. So really, they split off from one another only in the 18th, 19th centuries before mm -hmm. then. I think it, the idea of the philosophy reflecting on how to live wouldn't make your life better would have seemed perplexing. It would have seemed clear that that was the point of it, that it should be a kind of approach to life that improves your life. And I think one thing that has happened is there's a divorce between sort of philosophical theories and arguments, which can get very involved, and the kind of reflection on how to live that many of us engage in all the time that is basically philosophical, even though it doesn't use, you know, scare quotes philosophy, which is just trying to describe what we're going through in a way that makes better sense of it. And I think there's much more continuity between philosophical theory and argument and that kind of engaged description than some philosophers do. And that one thing philosophy can give us is really just concepts, descriptions, new ways of just new ways of articulating things that we can then apply. And that's one reason why it's not just a kind of narcissism or personal venting for the, my, the new book to talk so much about my own experience with chronic pain. I also talk about my experience of loneliness or my experience of grief. Part of it is to, to say, okay, I can't do this for you. I can't literally take you, the reader, and say, as a philosopher, I'm going to sit down and describe your life, and we're going to just talk about it. Uh, I wish I could, but what I can do is illustrate what it looks like if a philosopher with the tools of philosophy says, okay, well, what's actually happening in my life? Let me try and use philosophical concepts and ideas in, in connection with it in a way that's it's not that different from sitting down with a friend and saying, you know, what's actually going on in that relationship? Is she jealous of you? Is she angry at you? Why are you having so much friction? That kind of 
reflection we're all familiar with is, I think, less different from philosophical reflection than it might seem at first. So, so when I bring philosophy to bear on my life, and I hope on the lives of, of people who are reading the book, I hope I'm sort of illustrating how to do that by taking myself as, a, as an example. And you do find that philosophy has practical value to you because it's it's interesting what you say if you're talking about the 19 the 19th century i can't imagine i really can abraham lincoln taking a tome of philosophy off the shelf and you know sitting there in an evening of reading and quiet contemplation and really um that affecting the way that he approached his day the next day but that's not how i experience my own life you know i've long been of the conviction that we our, our gut becomes convinced of things and that we build all of this intellectual architecture on top of that and a way that I would illustrate that is sometimes when you have a problem you'll say well intellectually I know that ellipse <laughs> and the we all know the butt is coming which is intellectually I know it's fine but it's it's not like can you can you you've already mentioned the areas in which it's aided your life but really practically speaking I've got a problem right now. I've got an hour to tr to try to work on it. How do I how do I philosophize my way out of this? I mean, I think it really does depend on the problem. So one way, of course, one, yeah. You know, one way, yeah, one way the book is structured the way it is is one reason why it's structured the way it is is that I don't think there's some kind of grand theory. Sometimes philosophers will come along and say the secret of Stoicism is forget about everything you can't control, focus on what you, that, that doesn't matter, focus on what you can control. And then you can apply this sort of recipe yes. to any given problem. And, and part of what I think is it's not like that. It has to be more bottom up. So it's complete, going to look completely different if the problem is loneliness than it would look if the problem was failure in some project or getting fired from your, from your job or something, you know, that it, it will look, it will, it will have to be personalized. So, you know, in a way I don't, wouldn't say that, that if someone was, genuinely struggling with a problem i wouldn't say necessarily here's a kind of philosophical recipe for answering that often i think in practical terms you know talk to a friend and sit down and try and describe what's actually going on is the really the best advice it's just some of the ways of describing what's going on might not that might not occur to you are ones that philosophers can provide so so i would hope that the way the book works is People, you know, read a chapter and then think, "Well, does this actually ring true? Like, is this?" In, and sometimes I'm resigned to the fact that sometimes the answer is going to be no, but hopefully enough times the answer is, "Hold on, yes, I I do have that. I, I I am making that mistake about friendship. I'm thinking I, you know, I need to earn friends when really I should think it's there's a kind of value in everyone that is is worthy of friendship. And I just was losing touch with that. You know, sometimes it will feel like it connects with you personally, but it may not always. But yeah, so I, I don't know. If, if, is there a problem you're going through right now that we could sort of sit down and try to try to try to to work out? I mean, I think that, you know, we I, I'd be interested to know how you, you know, when there was a kind of failure, which was the the transition you were going through mm -hmm. when we last spoke, how did you seem good now? So how, how yeah. did how did that work out? You know, I, I honestly I I knock on wood thus far have led a pretty charmed life and even even the bad thing uh i won't say it was a good thing in disguise i'm not a everything happens for a reason kind of person but the simple fact of the matter is that a, 
a huge chunk of our audience was happy to follow us elsewhere and continue listening to us. So it became more of a, a, a scare, a staring into the abyss thing right. where there was in reality, there was never going to be an issue. There was, there was no way to know that at the time. So I've kind of gotten the safety net of uh, continuing to have an income <laughs> while at the same time getting all the benefits of, well, now I get a, a I have a, a fresh new leaf lease on life and I reevaluate everything and I find things that are important to me that I, you know, put to the side and don't have to talk to that boss anymore. Never really cared for that guy anyway. So it pretty quickly kind of became um, a, a, a net positive i I mean i think i think i understand what you're what you're saying well i I will talk about some of my personal challenges to make this a little bit more specific as we go on but what i heard you saying there was very often to work your way through a problem you need to have the right language to even be able to talk about it or else it's just the sticky morass and i can easily see where uh having uh, some working knowledge of philosophy would be very helpful in in that regard you argue uh, to get a little bit more granular with it for the, the pursuit of living well over the pursuit of happiness. What is the distinction there as you see? And why do you think the latter is preferable to the former? If I have my latter former, right? You do, you do. Thanks. So, so yeah, I think it's, it, no one really wants to be unhappy and kind of everyone wants to be happy, but there's a way in which I don't think happiness should be what we're aiming at. So one way to see the contrast is that you can think of happiness as a mood or feeling or whatever exactly is, it's a state of mind. And you could be happy, you could be in that state of mind while being completely out of touch with reality. So philosophers like neat thought experiments. So the standard one is to riff on the matrix and say, you know, imagine someone plugged into a virtual reality. They're the only person plugged in. They don't know they're plugged in. And it's feeding them a, a there's feedback and they can sort of interact with it. And it's, but it's feeding them a stream of experience that seems like an awesome life, but nothing they're doing is real. They're not really interacting with any other human being. They're not doing most of what they think they're doing. It's all fake. Now the thought is they're happy, but they're not really living a good life. They're not, they're hardly living at all. And so, you know, one way to think about this is I do you think I really hope my kids have good lives? What I'm going to do is, if if possible, plug them into a machine where they'll never interact with anyone ever again. The thought is, most of us think, no, I don't want them to have that life. And what we're responding to is the idea that to, to live well, to really live a good life, you have to be in contact with reality. It has to be a, a life of actually knowing what you're doing and what kind of world you're doing it in. So that tells us one thing, which is, you know, being happy is not the same as living well. So what is living well? And it a big part of it is trying to deal with reality in the way you should. And that means responding to adversity in the in the right kinds of ways, in ways that sort of make sense of it and help you cope with it. But also it means dealing with other people in the way you should. So one thing I, I, I think is helpful about framing the goal of, quote, self-help in terms of living well, rather than just you being happy, is that it makes clearer that there really isn't a, a sharp line between self-interest and morality or sort of what's good for you and what is good for other people. Because if what you want to do is live well in the sense of living a good life, part of living a good life is to some degree caring about other people and caring about the society around you. And that's that's sort of part of your own life being being a kind of decent life for you. 
Well, let's talk about that. I, I actually have a, uh, I found that one of the more challenging arguments that you make in the book, and I think it can be summed up in this following quote from the book. We cannot extricate justice from self-interest or divide ourselves from others. I don't think anybody would debate that uh, if we're talking about eudaimonia, the, the Aristotelian perfect life that one might lead, it certainly features meaningful, useful service to others. And I think we can all agree that if someone is um, selfish to the point of taking advantage of others, it doesn't matter if they're truly happy to their core, they're living wrongly. But when I... I I know I, I only know like maybe four people that I think have really got it all like put to like they really strike me as sane put together people without glaring holes in their emotional or psychological lives and there's there's a couple that come to mind immediately that I just think of as leading very happy but very self-contained lives I don't think they they uh want would would be a part of any project that was um expressly bad for other people, but I don't think they have any volunteering instinct, for example. I, maybe I don't know them, you know? Yeah. But I, it seems to me that it is possible to lead uh, a, a very, very satisfying life without giving a shit about society at large. I believe I've seen it done. Yeah. Well, I think it's you're right that you could leave, lead a, a satisfying life that way, and that, you know... You could be happy while being pretty indifferent to other people. I think the question is whether you can live a good life while being that indifferent to other people. And there, you know, I think this the idea that part of living well is responding to the world as you should. There's this question, like, how much should you care about other people? I think it's very, if someone says, I just don't think I should really care about other people, it's extremely hard to argue them out of that. I mean, you said this earlier that, that, people's gut feelings come first i think there's a i think that's basically right and there's philosophers should recognize that if someone's basically selfish and says i don't care about other people there may be no there's not going to be some clever argument you can give them that will show no you've contradicted yourself provided they stick to their guns you'll run out of arguments you'll say okay i can't there's nothing internally incoherent about basically saying i just care about myself but that doesn't mean that that's a reasonable view any more than, you know, if you talk to a conspiracy theorist, you may find yourself running into a wall where there's no argument that will show that they're wrong because every bit of evidence you provide, they have some crazy explanation of. And you can run into that wall, but it doesn't mean that that view is reasonable. So I think the same is true in this case, that we should care about other people. And if we want to live the way we should, we've got to do something about that, even if we can't prove that that's right. Exactly what to do about it and how much is hard. I mean, I, I think that for me, where this really comes into focus is less in terms of altruistically volunteering to help to, or donating to charities, which all of which are good things. It's more the sense that when I look at my life, I think there are structures that I'm caught up in, structures that I think are basically unjust. So like, you know, one example is I send my kid to public school. And I feel yeah, great about that. But of course, part of the reason I live in Brookline is that the public schools are incredibly well funded because there's a lot of wealthy people here. And it's part of a system of de facto segregation in the public schools whereby, you know, if you're white and rich, you can send your kids to public school and think, hey, I'm I'm part you know, part of the public school system, even though you're 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 
basically trading on a, a system that's in, unjust. And I think that's the kind of thing where I, I feel like, okay, I can't just ignore this. I'm part of it. And the same is true of things like climate change at a larger scale where we in the US have these gigantic carbon footprints and have historically done a huge amount to contribute to this problem. And then on TV or in the news, you see floods in, in Pakistan and think, yikes, uh, there's a basic system where certain parts of the world are inflicting huge harm primarily on people in other parts of the world for their own benefit. And I'm part of that. So what am I going to do? And it seems like that's the kind of case where it seems to me like being self-contained and saying, it's just not my business, feels like it, it isn't the right response. There's a way in which whether I like it or not, it's it's my business. All right, you asked me about the uh, personal Yeah, Yeah, stuff. what's going on? <laughs> well, I think yeah. it, I've had probably the same fundamental issue for as long as I can remember. And uh, you, in, in a different interview, specified some of the uh, the stumbling blocks that you see in the ways in which people approach their lives or value the the, the content, so to speak, of their lives. Um, and I was hoping you might expand uh, or expound a bit on each of them. I would say, to, to your question, two of these three apply to me very specifically and perhaps all three. So the first of the three... Uh, is measuring success or failure rather than valuing the process of how we seek our goals. And to an extent, we've already talked about this, you know, uh, talking about the pursuit of living well over the pursuit of happiness. But there is there is a difference. What do you... I, I know what you mean by that. Well, let me let me skip ahead a little bit. You're a you're a baseball guy. I don't think we discussed this yeah, last time. How, I don't, how, we may not have. How did you you were not raised in the states? No, no, no. I became a baseball fan under embarrassing circumstances, which was I was in grad school in New Jersey. I was at Princeton in the late '90s, and the Yankees. This was the era of Scott Brocious and Paul O'Neill and Derek Jeter and Jorge Posada. The core four. So the yeah. Yankee, they were the least unlikable. Look, so you know it was the Yankees, but I they seemed they seemed cool to me, mm -hmm. and so I became a Yankees fan, and they were incredibly good. And then as soon as you know, a few years passed and they signed Jason Jambi and A-Rod and I moved to Pittsburgh and became a Pirates fan. And at that point, I realized the Yankees were terrible, but I was I, I was already a baseball fan by then. That's awesome because, yeah, I, I grew up as a Yankees fan and they, they lost me at pretty much the exact same point. Have you been following the Aaron Judge stuff at all? That, I have a little that, that, bit, That's yeah. lured me back in a little bit. He seems that's like, fun. That's he's, fun. And he's homegrown, which makes all the difference. When they got Johnny Damon, it was a total jump the shark moment. Right. Okay. So you yeah. not only have taken interest in baseball, you've done your homework because it seems that when you make baseball references, they're at least 70 years old, which, <laughs> which I find impressive. So let's talk about, it, it, to, to, put, to make it specific, measuring success or failure rather than valuing the process of how we seek goals. You bring up Ralph Branca. Who, yeah. in one sense, I think, enjoyed a solid, if unspectacular, career as a starting pitcher for probably the Brooklyn Dodgers. But he is known as the guy who threw the pitch to Bobby Thompson, the shot heard round the world. Now, it seems to me that Bobby Thompson would be very justified if for the rest of his days, not like constantly, that would be weird, that would make him Buzz Aldrin, but if every now and again he said, hey, 
I'm the guy that hit the shot heard around the world. It never gets old. It feels really, really good. You know, uh, it doesn't make me Superman. There was a bit of luck involved, but I hit the shot heard around the world. That makes me happy in an ongoing sort of way. It therefore makes just as much sense that Ralph Bronco would go, you know, when you play the game at the highest level, there's winners and there are losers. And when you play the game of life, I have to carry this around with me. It kind of bums me out all the time that I and and, and the fact that you got to be really good. I always say in pro sports, you got to be really good to suck. Because you got to yeah. be so amazing that you made it to Game Seven of the World Series to be Bill Buckner in the first place. But doesn't it make sense that yes, you value the process, and yes, I did. Yes, I did enjoy just going out and throwing the ball around with my friends and with Dad. And boy, when I got drafted and when I bought my mom a car, that was great. But oof, I gave up the shot heard around the world. That sucks. How can we ask somebody to not view their life? to a great extent, maybe not totally, but to a great extent in terms of wins and losses. I think there's maybe two things to say that that will address this a little bit. So one is, I, in our previous conversation and in this book, I talk about this idea that projects have this downside where the success is always in the future. And then as soon as you achieve it, it's in the past. And all you're doing is trying to take this thing that's important and finish it and get it out of your life. And that's why we should value the process instead. And it's important to to you know, be attached to and see value in what you're doing independent of its success or failure, its outcome. And I, I think that's all true. But I think one thing that's happening in the good case, the Bobby, the Bobby Thompson looking back and feeling happy about this case, is actually what you're doing when you look back on an achievement is you're turning a project into a process. What you're doing is you're taking something that was finished, namely you hit this home run, that's done. And you're finding a, an ongoing activity that doesn't have a particular terminal point, namely reminiscing about my life. And that's a process. That's not a, a project-like thing. It's not aimed at a terminal end. And, and it's worth doing too. So I think one kind of healthy way to react to the fact that projects end and they're finished and they're over is to look back on them in ways that that allow you to, to sort of find this process of self-reflective enjoyment afterwards. So I think I think that does make sense, but it's consistent with the idea that there's value in the process and that's where we should look for it. The the Ralph Branca thing, I, it's not that I think he should deny that this was a kind of central failure. I think the risk here is one that comes by degree, which is allowing your life to be defined too closely by one thing. And I'm not sure he did actually. I'm, I don't know from reading, the, reading about Ralph Branca that he was actually uh, demoralized by this. He did. He went on baseball signings with Bobby Thompson, in which he he sort of acknowledged that this was a this was a moment. And yeah, you know, the, the thing you said, namely, you have to be pretty at the the highest reaches of sport to participate in this kind of failure on this kind of scale. Right. So I think his attitude to it was probably quite good. I think the risk it for a lot of us is a kind of. Uh, having a, a kind of Ralph Branca type thing, but inflicting it upon ourselves. That's to say, letting some one major thing in our lives be the defining project and then say, well, that failed. So I guess I'm a failure. And not putting it in a kind of context of all the other things with the little successes and failures and attachments in our lives. So that's the danger I think we have to, to ward off. And it's especially bad when we let those standards of success and failure be defined by society or defined by other people rather than taking ownership of them. You know, for a lot of people, financial success is the thing 
that feels like the measure of whether you've made it or not. And that I think is something to resist. Resisting it probably ultimately involves social change too. This is another kind of, that's a, a system we're caught up in that values people's lives by their financial success that isn't just individual. It's it's part of a kind of social uh, structure. And you know, I think we that's not a great social structure in which to let human beings flourish. I think it's a real problem. But uh, yeah, I think I think if Ralph Branca tells the story in the kind of way you were telling it, yeah, it might be okay. Yeah, and, and we see examples on on both sides. I mean, the classic example is the 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 Millie Vanilli guys, where I think one was able to see the absurdity and the joke in it, and the other tragically is that right? Tragically, really was was not. I, I'm under that impression. Well, uh-huh. one of them took his life, and the other oh one, my god, the other okay. one I think continues making music. So that that might be whether or not the specifics fit. Yeah, we we know what we're what we're getting at here. What do you mean by succumbing to the lore of the linear narrative? I'm familiar with the concept of us telling ourselves stories about our lives that we are convinced are true that are yeah. both wrong and uh overly negative but you know it may or may not be it seems to be human nature to understand our lives as as linear narratives uh we certainly respond to books and movies that turn people's messy lives into uh, into stories that have central themes that get resolved. Why is that inherently a stumbling block to living your best or perhaps happiest life? So I think the 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 danger is the one we've talked about, namely that you you'll end up with you you sort of mortgaging everything or you're sort of banking everything on this one project, and I if see. things go badly, then I I you know it feels like. You were the hero of a Hollywood movie, and then what happened in the movie is at the end he just failed, and that and that was a terrible movie. I see. And so I I, I think there's a risk that I, I suppose it, you know if it, if you end up being a huge success, you luck out. But even if you end up being a huge success, I think you're really missing something if you let one kind of thread in your life be the defining one because there's ever so much more to any given life. So there's this wonderful book that I, I talk about by Joshua Prager called The Echoing Green, which is about Bobby Thompson and Ralph Branca. And one of the things that's just beautiful about it is that long, long, long stretches of it have nothing to do with the shot heard around the world. It's just these guys had lives and they had families and they had, and you, you, I mean, this is a kind of banal observation, but being immersed in it for hundreds of pages, you get the sense of the richness of a life and the way in which if all we had was just the 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 thread that takes you to the shot heard around the world, we would have missed so much about their lives. And I think the same is true reflexively for ourselves. We just miss too much about our own lives if we define ourselves by by just one project. I, find, I don't know if this is exactly pertinent, but it reminds me of this uh, song that I heard recently that has really stuck with me. Uh, Lindsey Buckingham is the you know singer songwriter from Fleetwood Mac, and he's put out a pretty decent, considering he's been doing it for like fifty years, solo album recently. And it, there was a line I don't remember the line exactly, but the point is, you know, in the morning I feel like my life is this great success, and at night I feel like a failure. And the idea that it just with the tides seems to change. And I know that, uh, I think my example in this regard, last time we spoke was uh, British prime minister Disraeli talking about how Uh he felt like his life was a failure. And I'm like, God, uh, if, if, if Lindsay Buckingham 
feels like he's come up short. Um, what's, what hope does any of us have? And the answer to that, of course, is he has not come up short. He's succeeded by any measure. So if he does not feel completely at peace with that, either A, he's taking the wrong approach to seeing his life, or once again, we've returned to the human condition, which is uh -huh. where you <laughs> kind of can't change the way that you regard yourself or your value or your happiness, even if you uh, write rumors. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because the, the this tendency to compare with others is is difficult to fight. And so one thing that can make even hugely successful people feel like failures is that there's someone more successful. Yeah, and, right. you know, unless you're Michael Jordan, that's true if you're a basketball player or the equivalent of Michael Jordan in whatever field, you know, so there's that. And there's, there's also, I suppose, there's uh, a kind of just the power of imagination that it's we're able to imagine how things could have gone better. And there's a, you know, there's a danger in that too of of always being able to think, well, what if, what if right. this could have happened better? And to some extent, I think this is a case where a certain kind of detached reflection, where you step back from your life and just think, what would have been, what what would have been, what kind of life do I wish I had? Is a kind of fantasy that's actually damaging. It's because. It, it takes away from one of the main sources of affirmation of one's own life, which is just actually sort of zooming in on the particular things that were good and the particular people that you're attached to and that you just wouldn't even know or have relationships with if you'd had this fantasy life that would have been wildly different and better. And so I think attachment is something that we lose sometimes when we engage in a certain kind of reflection. So although it might be a bit weird for a philosopher to be saying, you know, don't step back and reflect on your life in too detached a way, because you might think detached reflection is what we're all about. I, I think, again, that's not actually, that kind of life examination is something that I think there are, there's a philosophical critique of that that I think is, is important to internalize. Uh, one more thing. Uh, speaking of baseball, you mentioned... Uh, enlisting some of your personal heroes, you mentioned Bill Veck. Uh, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anyone give any personal estimation of Bill Veck oh. one way or another, sort of famously sort of a P.T. Barnum of yeah. baseball <laughs> to put it in. A, he's the guy who made the White Sox play in shorts, which the players did not care for, particularly when they had to slide, and also was the guy who sent um, a, a, a little person to bat and That's told right. him to stand yep. in Eddie Gaydell and told him to get... My family used to own a bar and they had a picture of him standing there in his crouch with the, <laughs> the catcher helplessly uh -huh. catching ball four as he got another walk. What is it? Uh, how the hell do you know who Bill Veck is? How oh. do you know... Uh, how did you come to know enough about him that you could find things to really like about him? Out of all the people that you are familiar with, why do you think he stands out as someone worthy of admiration or connection? So, I think it the shtick that he invented, which is now at every ballpark in America, minor league and major league has some version of the, the shtick between innings where that they, there's a t-shirt toss at the very least, or there's a quiz where some fan is given a crazy prize. It's easy to roll your eyes at that. I kind of do sometimes baseball purists sometimes hate it. Sure. I, from coming from his point of view, I, from his perspective, this was just a kind of a, a source of joy and b a way to make fan. He would buy baseball teams as the part owner. He had very little money, but he would buy teams that were terrible and he would need to make fans come while they were terrible. And this was his plan for doing it. It was, I think, pure joy. And he then did go on to have winning teams. He tried, he also integrated the American League he um, uh, with the Indians. And uh, he 
was not someone who was sort of indifferent to baseball success. He was a canny baseball manager. He tried to integrate the American League in a radical way by by just signing an entire team of, at the time, the Negro Leagues were incredibly strong. And he said, why don't I just, I just have a whole team. Uh, and he was blocked by the other owners. So I think he was a kind of, he was fighting for justice. He was doing it with joy. And he he was a winner, um, uh, which I shouldn't, I guess I shouldn't say he was a winner given my earlier comments, but he his teams won eventually. I, so I just find him, and he also had this, disability, which was his leg was progressively amputated as a result of injuries in World War II. So I think of him as he he had his flaws too, but he is one of my heroes. I don't actually remember how I found out about him. I think it might have been the Ken Burns baseball oh, documentary, sure. which led me to this book, which I recommend called VEC as in Rack, which he co-wrote with the sports writer Ed Lynn. And that is a book when I'm feeling depressed, that is a book I go back to as just a source of joy in hard times and yeah i i really loved it um the meaning of life is revealed in chapter six of your book i will i will give you <laughs> i'll give you the option of revealing it here but i'm inclined to tell people that they will need to buy it or at least borrow it from the library to find out what that is it, it is true that what i what i usually say is yeah i can't tell you the meaning of life you have to buy the book but yeah. it, it has to do with things we talked about which is the idea that we can find meaning in the 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 sort of fight for justice and that our, our, we can sort of reconcile ourselves to many of the things that are hard about the human condition in a way that's not unlike the way religion can if human history takes a certain shape and so the meaning of life is, is dependent on how human history goes and although each of us can only do a tiny bit to make a difference to that that's another reason why we might think of ourselves as caring about other people and caring about humanity in a way that makes us less self-contained. We've only scratched the surface, obviously, of what is in the book. So I recommend everybody uh, go and find the copy and read it. It is called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And also, Kieran, you started a podcast during the pandemic. You host the Five Questions podcast. That's right. Yeah, it's basically it was my pandemic project. I, I, it was the most unoriginal response to the pandemic. Everyone started a podcast. And this is one where I basically ask philosophers personal questions about themselves. So I ask them uh, things like, do you really believe your philosophical views? And what are you afraid of? And sometimes the answers are about, you know, are intellectual. And sometimes the answers are quite personal. And it, it was a really fun thing for me to do a way to connect with philosophers while I was hunkering down during the the lockdowns in my in my room uh, but you've kept it up even as we return to i have with, we're just doing season three and yeah well it, it you know as you will know it takes some time and i'm not doing it professionally so they uh, but actually it takes more time the better i get at it because now i spend more time editing and playing with the audio back when i didn't know what i was doing i would just be like okay that's done so yeah um, but yeah i hope i'll keep doing it it's, it's really fun well, thank you as always for your time and uh, come see us again next time when you have another book for now. Again, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk. 